Well, good morning. It's good to see the room almost full. This is great. I'm delighted to be here as always, and it's always a particular joy when Randy and Julie are present. They're such an encouragement to me, and I'm actually envious of that drive you're going to take. That sounds like a sanctifying journey through the beautiful country of North Carolina and Virginia and Kentucky and into Ohio. Let's open God's Word to Psalm 11 as we commence with our Again, with our consideration of the Psalms, we find ourselves coming to a psalm that King David is having written for the director of music, is in critical circumstances, but nonetheless in a confident vein, seeking the safety of his Lord. Now, we know already that he's gone through many ups and downs. Sometimes he seems strong. Uh, sometimes not so strong, but we catch him, as it were, in a strong mode now by the grace of God as he is attempting to deal with the onslaught of oppressors, the particulars about which we really know very little. Some have said that this is a physical battle that he is attempting to avoid. Others have said that these warlike terms we find in the Psalms are reflective of slander. Nonetheless, we know that David is, by the grace of the one who has called him to be king over Israel, doing the right thing in the account that we have before us. And because this is God's word, it is normative for our spiritual instruction and growth in grace, even these many, many years later. Let's hear now the word of God, Psalm 11 verses 1 through 7, for the director of music of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them, the Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur, a scorching wind will be their lot, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the true and living God stands forever. Let's again pray to him. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of being in your house to sing your praises, to confess our sins, to be assured of your pardon, to open your word, to hear it preached, and to sup with you in communion at your table. What a privilege that we have so often taken for granted We ask that by your spirit you would move in our midst and work in our hearts, that you would bring conviction, that you would bring comfort, and that you would build us up as only you can for the glory of the greater David, even Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen. In the early 90s, when my mother was terminally ill, we were living in Mississippi at the time I had just finished college, My father was working for an agency in the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and he'd become 
friends with the Mississippi State Commissioner of Agriculture, a man named Jim Buck Ross, who was a, an outspoken evangelical Christian. And he wrote a note to my father at the time of my mother's passing, and he wrote everything that he wanted to say, and then he signed it, Go With God, Jim Buck Ross. And as a 22-year-old upstart Calvinist, I remember Dad showing me that and thinking, my goodness, couldn't this guy have come up with a, a closing salutation that packs a little deeper theological punch than that? You know how you look at the statements, the concise, almost seemingly pithy things that Christians sometimes write and you think those things? Well, I'll tell you, two and a half decades later, after the ins and outs of life, those words that were simple then are much more profound today. That's what King David is doing in Psalm 11. He is choosing to go with his God over against an option presented by a group of counselors that in the final analysis would have proven not only unviable, but perhaps even damaging in some way to his soul or his very existence. And so David, in going with Yahweh, his God, gives us true belief's answer to doubt's posed question and doubt's poor response. Let me give that to you again. David, in his choice of going with God, gives us true belief's answer Verse 1a, to doubts posed question, verse 3b, and doubts poor response, verses 1b through 3a. That's basically the DNA of the psalm. And he turns the corner in verse 4 and he focuses on who God is and what God does as he ultimately, throughout time, brings both the wicked and the upright to their respective outcomes. What is in store for the one who runs to God, who makes the declaration that he does in verse 1a, in the Lord I take refuge, his emphatic stand, undeniable, unshakable, choosing to seek safety in the one who is his God and pointing us ultimately to what is in store, and that is the beholding of the totality of all of who God is as seen one day by His own in the fullness of His glorious countenance. We might outline the psalm this way in verses 1 through 3. We have the problem of human insufficiency. In verses 4 and 5, we have the potency of divine authority. In verse 6, we have the plight of the unbelieving. And in verse 7, we have the pleasure of the believing. Now, there's been debate as to the circumstances in David's life at the time that he writes this psalm. Uh, some contend he's on the run from Saul. Others have said perhaps he's on the run at the time that he's trying to get away from Absalom, his son. I would suggest to you that it's Neither, because as the books of Samuel make clear in both of those instances, he did in fact run to his mountain and no one told him to do it. 
So it seems here that this is most likely, particularly given a reference to violence in verse 5, probably some other military campaign against him, perhaps at a later point in his life, about which we do not know the details, but that nonetheless make him fearful for his life. But it's as if he's perhaps learned the lesson that ultimately a change of location will not ultimately spare one from death. No, where does he go? He doesn't make a physical change as much as he engages in a spiritual focus in his heart and mind that he will contemplate and he will lay hold of the safety, the sure tower that his Lord, the God of Israel, is. He begins in verse 1b to pose a question of sorts of his own. How then can you say to me, this is in response to the one who is reporting the counsel of the group of advisors, Now, I have to tell you, the toughest thing about expositing Psalm 11 comes in these first three verses and the quotation. And I won't bore you with all of the details and and all of the things that wound up on my cutting room floor in my study. But I have to tell you, this is quite challenging. And the reason is because there are variations of views regarding where the citation ends. Perhaps some of you have translations where the closing quotes come at the end of verse 1. Others of you may have translations that close the quotation at the end of verse 2, and still others will have the close quotes coming at the end of of the citation at the end of what we know to be verse 3. Now, when all is said and done, I believe that that is the correct way to present this in the English. It's one of the reasons I chose the NIV to read publicly before preaching this passage, because in the context that we've already set, it makes no sense for David to pose the question in verse 3b. Why would you ask, what can the righteous do when you have already emphatically taken your stand in the Lord of the righteous? If you move the closing quotation mark anywhere up to any point before the end of verse 3, then what you have left over are the words of David that are mere reflections upon what his counselors have said. And that really doesn't fit the context. What we have between verses 1b and the end of verse 3 is the instruction of his counselors and then their development of why it is that they would have him do this. Flee like a bird to your mountain. For, for the wicked bend their bows and they, they've set their arrows against the string. Uh, what an image. You can just see that. Uh, they want to shoot down men like you, David, as it were. They want to come at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? They've, they've surveyed the land. They've taken in the impact of the wicked upon the nation of Israel and they've seen the way that there's been such a widespread effect of sin. They've looked at politics. Uh, They perhaps have looked at education. Whatever it may be, as we would look around in our day and survey the erosion of God's standards in our society, they have counted all of this And and in a a moment of unbelief, if you will, or certainly doubt, they throw up their hands. What can the righteous do? You better run for the hills. 
see it, it smacks of a lack of confidence that the king has shown in verse 1a. It's counter to it. But nonetheless, these are well-intentioned advisors. In verse 2, the wicked there is in the third person. That's an indication that the one speaking on behalf of the group of counselors is one who is distinguishing himself and themselves from the evildoers. So these are friends. These are, and I use the word in quotation, good guys. They, they mean David well. They don't want to see their king killed. Now, that's significant, but not for a reason that most posit. Some, having recognized that, will go in this direction with the text. They'll apply it something like this. Well, this is a lesson in even how the best intentioned of people can steer you the wrong way. I mean, beware, after all, even within the church. You may seek the counsel of your brothers and sisters in Christ, but they can steer you wrong. But I believe that it is better to conclude, given the fact that these were well-intentioned people, that what the Lord really wants us to see is that it doesn't matter where wrong advice comes from if it's wrong. If it's counter to seeking refuge in Yahweh who is the safe tower of His people, it it doesn't matter who's offering it. Man can come up with some remarkably strategic and rational and even helpful possibilities of deliverance and aid in certain circumstances. It isn't that wise men can't offer good words and make prudent suggestions. But Psalm 11 verses 1 through 3 calls us to see that we must never fall under the illusion of thinking that the ingenuity of men can legitimately take precedent over the dependability of God. That's the message. You can be somewhere having heeded the advice of men and perhaps even for a time know some semblance of safety. But if you are absent the benefits of having taken refuge in the Lord God Almighty, You won't last. You won't make it. You cannot make it without that. makes me think of the story of Dr. Joel Gregory. Some of you may be familiar with Dr. Gregory. Dr. Gregory grew up in Texas, and he was what we might call among young preachers a a prodigy, golden-voiced, homiletically gifted, and he became the heir apparent at the most coveted position in all of the Southern Baptist Convention, the pulpit at First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. And you may recall in the late 80s, there was a time where he was brought in to overlap for a couple of years with the intention of him succeeding Dr. W.A. Criswell, who had been at that church for 50 years. And he brought in, and he was actually given the title of pastor, Dr. Gregory was, before Dr. Criswell had left at First Baptist Church in 1990. And as he was there, Dr. Gregory talks about how he began to see that Dr. Criswell was going to stay longer than he had been led to believe. And as a preacher, he focused on preaching, but he began to see the politics that go on in these churches of considerable amounts of wealth and and community influence. 
and he saw that he was being pressured to change certain things or do certain things differently. And the long and short of it was that after two years with Dr. Criswell still there, he decided in accord with his conscience that he could no longer stay at that church. He gave it all up. He had cream, a big house, a nice car, everything. He gave that up for conscience sake. His wife left him, and by 1994, he was going door-to-door in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex selling funeral plots. It's an interesting story. The African-American churches actually took him back in, and I would encourage you sometime to look at it. It's absolutely amazing how this ministry's, this man's ministry turned around. He remarried, and he's still working for the Lord today in his mid-to-late 60s. But on an analysis retrospectively of his own experience there and realizing that he should have been more pliable and perhaps not put all of his eggs in the preaching basket, as they say, and developed some other pastoral gifts, as he was looking back on the experience, Dr. Gregory made this statement. A strong gift can take you where the absence of others cannot keep you. And I think that that sums up what King David is expressing to his counselors here and would have Israel and us know that you can take a little bit of good advice and go to a place, but if you do not possess all of the verities and the blessings that flow from having taken refuge in God, you won't stay there. You won't have security. You won't have hope. You simply need to lay hold of those objective truths, whatever you're facing in life. And remember that it is as you draw near to David's God in sincere trust, only then will you have certainty that everything's going to be okay. Perhaps the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 19 and following put it best when he writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, His body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. That is the ultimate picture of the Davidic choice to go with God and not with men, irrespective of how well-intentioned they may be. But secondly, in verses 4 and 5, we come to the potency of divine authority. I use this as another derivative of the word from which we get the word potentate. I noticed when I was here two weeks ago that crown him with many crowns was last month's hymn of the month for you. I love that fourth stanza, crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. Uh, That term engages us in the reality that God is at work in his creation over time. He's not merely letting things run out, but he is stationed in his heaven and he is governing so as to accomplish certain things, namely the administration of justice in accord with his standards. And Psalm 4 and 5 points us to that. Notice the language that King David uses. The Lord is in his holy temple. 
A temple is the word that was used to refer to literal temples. Solomon constructed a temple of which we read in 1 Kings 6 and 7. In the post-Solomonic era, that is those living after those who saw those physical temples, they understood what the tabernacle had meant before that as Israel had moved about. And they would retrospectively refer to the tabernacle as the temple. Uh, We refer, even in some circles today, uh, to heaven as a temple because of that very meaning. And that's what David is doing here. He clarifies in 4b, the Lord is on his heavenly throne. He has in mind the dwelling place of God, and that is in heaven. He has turned his sights upward, as it were, to the temple, and not only the temple, but a holy temple. That is a place set apart expressly for the maintenance of God's moral standard, and that place from which he engages all of his creatures, and he works in their midst, and he is in pursuit of the maintenance of what his law requires. Ultimately met perfectly by the Lord Jesus Christ, as has already been made clear in our worship service today. But with this specific notion of the maintenance of God's standards, we then move on to what it means that he is observing the sons of men and that he is examining. There are many verses in Scripture that indicate that all things are laid bare before the eyes of God. They are naked before Him and He sees them. 1 Peter 3.12 tells us that the eye of God, eyes of God are upon the righteous. And that hints at the uniqueness, I believe, that concept of what the king is driving at here in particularly verse 5a. He examines all men, but we know that those who stand against him, whose works will not stand, and those whom God in his soul hates, as the text says, that is his holy hate, his his perfect and just malice that will be unleashed in his judgment for all eternity upon those who have not sought refuge in Yahweh, uh, they will get theirs, and that is something that is sort of a reminder here in this psalm because we've seen it before and we'll see it again throughout the Psalter. But what stands out to us here is his examination of the righteous. What does it mean that he examines? And the word here in the Hebrew literally is best translated tests. He tests the sons of men. The wicked fail the test. The righteous pass the test only for the righteousness of Christ ultimately imputed to them and received by faith alone. But there is a test, as it were, that a believer, well-intentioned, much like David's counselors, can fail. And that's what we need to zero zero in on here. What does it mean that the Lord examines the righteous? Well, given the fact that it means a test, the king is using this anthropomorphism of divine visuality to indicate how it is that the Lord ferrets out among those who name His name their works to test whether they bear allegiance by His grace to His standard. This word test uh, in the Old Testament was actually used in uh, the ancient Near East and in the culture of Israel's time to refer to the purification of precious metals, testing. 
Well, it's interesting that throughout the Old Testament, particularly, for example, in the book of Jeremiah, we see this same language with regard to the purposes of God as the ultimate judge of all men. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve, or more literally, the fruit of his deeds. And this concept continues in the New Testament. Paul, to the church at Corinth, as he is dealing with them in his writings regarding many of their misgivings about the advancement of the kingdom, and you're familiar with this church at Corinth, they had many, many problems. He says to them in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 3, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder And someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, see, even Paul has in mind these these gems, much like I believe King David did, but other elements of the creation, wood, hay, or straw, the end of verse 12. Verse 13 says, His work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but not only as one but only as one escaping through flame. So Paul makes it clear there that salvation ultimately is not by the works of men, but by the works of Christ. But it is possible for those who are in Christ to be engaged in works that will not last. And the principle you see that is at work in Psalm 11:5a is that the God of heaven works and governs so as to draw out from those who seek refuge in Him a viable attestation to the truthfulness that if you run to Him as your refuge, you will, in fact, be saved. Have you ever stopped to think about that? That your works and mine in the world is ultimately the only way that the world sees, as the Spirit of God works, the reality that we all want them to see, that there is a Savior, that He stands ready to save to the utmost all of those who will seek refuge in Him. God doesn't need your works, as Luther said, but your neighbor does. And God holds His own to this standard for His glory, that it may be known ultimately throughout the world and wherever He might place us, that He is one in whom men can take refuge. And they will certainly see their God. I was moved a couple of weeks ago. I was attending a meeting in which a missionary from Papua New Guinea was giving his testimony and how the Lord had called him to the mission field there. Mr. David Ogg, he and his wife have been in Papua New Guinea since 1991, learning the language, which took 10 years. They went over there in 1991. It was 2002 before they started a church. Can you imagine that? And he showed a video of people who had professed faith, giving their testimony in these 
remarkably complicated tribal languages that they had to work through and, and learn and so they could teach them God's word in this. And they were, they were being baptized. And I marveled at that. And I was so heartened by it and encouraged. And this man said that he was a comfortable welder in Santa Clarita. And the Lord called him to the mission field because one night he was reading John 15, 16, in which Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And the sight of the true and living God beams down upon you and me today as it did David, as it did his friends, as it did his foes. And it calls for us to bear fruit that will last. Only one life will soon be passed, but only what's done for Christ will last. I was encouraged when John Mitchell reminded us all this week, or maybe it was, yeah, I think it was Monday, when he set out the quote from Francis Chan that I love from a few years ago, our greatest fear should not be failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. I mean, does that strike at the very heart of the American need in particular? It's just remarkable. We are so wrapped up in so many things that do not amount to a frostbit hill of beans eternally. And they will pass away. And when they do pass away, the flame that engulfs them will come so close so that we see that our escape, even as those saved by the blood of Christ, is a narrow one. Doesn't that make you want to invest and sow into the kingdom of God every last ounce of every last resource that He has given you, can we not see that our salvation is by grace? Yes, but as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2.10, in order that we may do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. There is the potency of divine authority that sets off His power to be an eternal refuge for all of those over whom death is hovering can escape and no safety, no not death, but no life and life eternal. Well, quickly hastening on to the third matter very quickly of the plight of the unbelieving. In verse 6, we have some very stark language yet again. Those whom God's holy hatred is fixed upon because of their wickedness, those who have not sought refuge in Him, on them He will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. This language is familiar to us. It's the language of Genesis 19 with regard to Sodom and Gomorrah. There, verse 24 of Genesis 19 tells us of the burning sulfur raining down. And the riders of Revelation 9.17 had fiery breastplates and sulfurous breath. It's going to be destructive. It's going to be smelly. A scorching wind will be their lot. And there's a, a continual dimension to this. This will be is in the present. A scorching wind. 
Uh, the winds in Israel were very hot, moving from the east to the west, much like a Santa Ana might come across Orange County and make it very, very hot along the coast. In the beach cities of the South Bay of Los Angeles in the 90s with no breeze, uh, very uncomfortable, it can hover for days. Think of all of this imagery with regard to the eternality of the judgment of God. Do we really know what it is that we are saved from? I remember as I attended that meeting where that missionary to Papua New Guinea was giving a report, watching very carefully the videos of those baptisms of professing believers. And what was interesting is that they would give them time to make a public profession at the baptism. And some of them gave two or three minute speeches. And I was so impressed with the way these natives in their own tongue could could speak so particularly about what Jesus had done for them and what he had saved them from. More than one person I noticed when watching the videos before they were baptized would say something like, thank you, Jesus. And this is in English subtitles on the bottom of the screen. Thank you for coming down to us, Jesus, and saving us from the fire or saving us from the flames. Here are these natives in this remote region, and they had something of the ghastliness of God's judgment as depicted here in Psalm 11.6. And we've noted before, have we not, in our study thus far of the Psalms, that it is important, even though we struggle with what we would call a balance between mercy and justice. We know that we're supposed to pray for our enemies. Sometimes we feel guilty when we are imprecatory and we want people who are wicked to get theirs. But you know, there's no way around the fact that the wicked must get theirs if those who are to be shown mercy will get theirs. For death itself to die, the purveyors of it must go as well. The destructive must be destroyed for the sake of God's own. We only have real and lasting peace when we know that every last threat to that peace has been conquered. And Psalm 11.6 teaches us that ultimately only when we have sought refuge and the Lord will we know the restraining and the conquering of all of his and our enemies. Unless there is real and final condemnation, there is no joyous and lasting salvation. That is why this is here, so that we may know ultimately what it means that God is for us and no one or thing stands against us. But finally then, we have the pleasure of the believing. As you look at verse 7, uh, you talk about delighting in God and what it means to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Yes, you can enjoy Him now, but the full enjoyment of your God will come at that day when by His grace He receives you into His presence and openly acknowledges and acquits you by the righteousness of His Son. And He allows you to eternally look upon, gaze upon the fullness all that He is and the perfection and the the totality of His glory. The Lord is righteous. He loves justice. That indicates that it is only those who have come to Him whom He has made righteous 
that love what He loves, that love divine rightness, if you will, and seeing that happen in the creation, having been by the process of the great testing and examining of the righteous, having been purified and made upright, they will see His face. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.8 that even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. That means that those who believe in Him now, though we don't see Him, we will see Him. And you know that you will see your King. Revelation 22.4 indicates that. Men have seen the face of Jesus. The saints will eternally behold the glorified face of Jesus. But there's more to the face of God than the face of Jesus. The face that the psalmist is talking about here is that countenance that the people of God from of old longed to see. It's the face that Moses could not look upon in Exodus 33:20 and live. You see, the statement that you will be like Him for you will see Him as He is that John issues in 1 John 3, 2 is a statement telling us that it is because of our being glorified and the removal of sin from us that we will see Jesus. We will experience what He experienced. He came under the power of sin, rose up victoriously above it and was glorified. And as we seek refuge in Him, He will bring us to Himself and like Him, we too will be glorified and there will be no enmity. There will be no problem between God and man. And what David has in mind here for those who seek refuge in Yahweh is that they will behold without interruption, without burden, the fullness of their God. When I stand in glory, I will see His face. You need to take that with you because that's huge. The weightiness of that is enormous and is meant to bring you beyond anything that would trouble you or cause fear for you. Think of that. What man could not live before in Moses' day, men who have sought refuge in God will live before eternally. And, And you will see the fullness of your God Oh, how our hearts should anticipate being able to do so and to experience the full blessedness and the full happiness and not have the troubles of this life due to us because of our sin or the result of our sin cause us to have anything keeping us from Him. But we will come to Him and true community which we look forward to as we come to this communion table today, will then be established. It will be a wonderful thing, a beautiful thing, to think that the weightiness of this life and all of our pains and groans and griefs and fears, with death itself having died, we will be united to God and we will experience Him in an everlasting way, in an unfathomable way through this anthropomorphism and this idea of the face of God. Do you look forward to seeing Him? Do you realize that if you are His, if you have sought 
refuge in him through the greater David that you will see him and live. You will stand. You will experience what it means that he is a God who removes burdens, who delights in taking away sin and connecting you with himself. Just two months ago, a man and a woman who have been pen pals for 42 years saw one another for the first time. They're now in their 50s, but in 1975, at the ages of 12 and 15, respectively, they were part of a chain letter that had eventually stopped, but George Gossin of East Islip, New York, and Lori Gertz of San Diego, California, continued to correspond, and in April never having heard one another's voices nor seen one another's faces, they met when Lori took her 18-year-old son from San Diego to New York to visit Hofstra University as a prospective student. And a meeting was arranged. A platonic relationship, almost like siblings, they had spilled the details of their lives in these letters since 1975, and they had been dependent upon one another They had helped one another. They had advised one another. And now they meet face to face. And when that happened, Lori said this. When I met George, I was so gloriously happy. This is so beautiful. It doesn't have the weight of all that has happened to us in our lives. It has the lightness of what a true connection really is. That is what you not having seen yet believed in will experience on that day. It will indeed be beautiful. It won't have the weight of all of your sin and everything that has happened to you in your life. It'll have the lightness and the eternality of true and lasting communion, perfect in the presence of God, perfectly restored to commune with Him forever. That's what awaits those who go with God. That is what is in store for them, that the true contentment of the soul, and that's the blessedness with which we began our study of the Psalter, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. His standard is God's standard and blessedness comes over time when the gracious God moves among His people and tests them and consumes dross and establishes them before Himself as pure gold, pure in heart, with the result of seeing Him. Yes, our our host at the table this morning has summed it up best in the beatitude of Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That ultimately, beloved, is what calls to us from the 11th Psalm. May God apply it to our hearts. Let's pray. What an appropriate reminder in this sacrament 
Lord, as we, we come and we feed upon you and we drink from your cup, knowing that you are here with us, you are present, you are with us. We can't see you, but we know you're here. You are beckoning us from the halls of eternity and assuring us as we sup with you that one day we will see you. And there we will serve you forever in that holy temple. Lord, we ask that you would help us. We ask that you would cause us to come with you, to be done with lesser things, not to be turned aside to or ensnared by the things of the world, but may we seek your counsel, knowing that you are all wise, and ultimate safety is only in you. Will you cause us to declare as definitively as King David did years ago, in you, O Lord, I will take refuge. And may we honor you by anticipating every day that time when we will look upon you and live. Hear us. Through Christ we do pray. Amen.